The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Take your Bibles and turn with, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. I'm glad to be back on schedule with Genesis. Parents, if your kids are in cross-form kids, we may not be in the same location as they are, but they're going through the same thing that we're going through here in the sanctuary. Genesis chapter 6 is kind of a turn of events that begins to take place, that happens. I want to read through part of the chapter for you just to get some context of where we're looking at this morning and share some thoughts, uh, espouse this passage to you. Beginning in verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And in verse 14, proceeding on to verse 21, we know that God gives the instructions to Noah how he is to build an ark to save his family and bring the animals on the ark. And for the sake of time, I won't read that. But the important thing is in verse 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Father, we pray that, Lord, as we dig into this passage, God, we ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts, O God. That, Lord, each person here would hear the voice of the Lord through the Word of God, and that, Lord, by your Spirit, by your grace, empowered by the Spirit, Lord, we pray that we might walk in obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we have the description of what is taking place as Jesus referred to in the days of Noah. About 1,600 years had passed from the time that Adam and Eve had eaten of the forbidden fruit, had disobeyed God, and sin had entered the world. And from that point through Adam, the Bible teaches that all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. 
We know that they had two sons afterward, Cain and Abel, and the destructiveness of sin wasn't very far away from Adam and Eve as Cain rose up to slay his brother Abel. But God in his grace and his mercy gave Adam and Eve another son. His name was Seth. And we see in the genealogy in chapter 5 how there are really two distinct lines between Seth, who we would consider the righteous one, and Cain we consider the unrighteous one. And here we come to this point. And during those 1,600 years, the population of the earth had grown exponentially. Institution of Creation Research tells us that that by their calculations, if you were to take the birth rate or the growth rate of population today and put it there just as things are today and put it in that time, that the population on earth at that time was somewhere around 750 million individuals. Now, that sounds like a lot, but you have to take into account in those days, they lived a lot longer than we do today. And so the probability could have been that the earth's population was not just 750 million, but somewhere around 4 billion individuals on the face of the earth at that time. Now, none of us really know for sure, but those are just estimates. But the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve had been obedient to God. They had been fruitful and they had multiplied. Amen? And so with that many people, not only had the population grown exponentially, but according to the record of Scripture, sin did not stop at the garden and sin did not stop with Cain killing Abel. But just as the population grew, the Scriptures tell us here that sin had become so pronounced that it filled all of the face of the earth. Look what he says again in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about that. Every inclination, every thought of man's heart was sinful, was wicked continually. And it had grown to such a point in verse 11, God says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The thing we get from this mostly is that sin left unchecked will not subside, that it will continue to grow, and it had gotten to such a point that God had even repented in that sense. He was grievous that he had made man, and he made a determination that he is going to judge man and wipe out all of the inhabitants of the earth except for one man and his family, and that was Noah, the eighth that he would call into the ark. It's very reminiscent, I think, of the description that Paul gives for us in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now listen to this. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 1 is talking about the behavior of the Gentiles, but it's very similar to the way that the behavior seems to be described in Genesis chapter 6 at the time of God's judgment. He says this in verse 18, chapter 1 of the book of Romans, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the things resembling moral man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committed shameless acts and with and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I got some bad news for you. It's not going to get any better. Now, you don't want to hear that the first weekend of 2021, do you? But we have to understand that, that man is fallen and the earth is full of sinful men. And that sin will continue to abound. And as Paul describes, the Gentiles in that day, very similar to the days in Noah's days, Timothy, as he is written to by Paul, we're going to see at the end of the message, Timothy begins to talk about, or Paul begins to talk about the way that men will be. The fact is, is that sin is not going to be changed through a better culture. Can anybody say amen to that? The sin condition will not be changed through higher education. The sin condition has only one resolution, and that's the spilled blood of Jesus who made an atonement and payment for all of our sins. But in this day, in Noah's day, we read in verse 8 where God says this, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God had seen that sin had so grown to the extent that there seemed to be no other choice except to wipe out from the face of the earth all men, every living existence, and save that one righteous man, Noah, and all his family. Now, the Bible is very specific that as a result of the consequences of sin, sin has to be judged, right? Someone may say, well, how could a loving God But can I tell you that 
that God is loving, but God is also holy and God is just. If God did not judge sin, he would no longer be God because he would be contrary to his nature and character. And sin requires judgment. But in God's judgment, there is always mercy that precedes the judgment of God. And as it is today, where we are in what we might call a period of mercy, where God is withholding his judgment, so it was in the day of Noah. There are two very specific times or two main events and times in Scripture where God's judgment is most pronounced. The first one is here to Noah at that time. The second one is one that still has not taken place, and it's one that's going to come in the future. And speaking of that future judgment, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, where he said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, notice Jesus says in verse 26 that just as it was in the days of Noah. Now, if we're not careful, we will jump to make the conclusion that Jesus is talking that that Jesus is only going to come when the sin reaches the level that it did in Noah's day. That's not what he's referring to. It's linked to the next statement that he makes here, which is one that needs to cause us to wake up and to listen and examine where we are in light of that. Just as it was in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What Jesus was saying is that, that, that humanity and even the church is going to be involved in a way that they're just going on, living every day for what's in the day and have re- no regard whatsoever that there is an impending judgment that is coming from God. Now, I got to tell you, this is not a popular sermon series, right? It would not fit with a modern church growth movement textbook to preach on the judgment of God. But it was a repeated theme by Jesus, and it was a repeated theme by his apostles as well as they wrote their letters, that there is a judgment of God that is coming. And our responsibility is that we need to wake up and not just do church as we've always done church, but recognize and realize that God, because God is just, in his mercy he is withholding his judgment, but there is a day of judgment that is coming, and at that judgment it'll be too late. There'll be no second chances. You see, God in his love and his mercy has always given in Scripture a herald, if you will, before his judgment came. We see it in Noah's day. Peter writes of Noah in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, when he says that if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness. Some of your Bible translations will say a 
preacher of righteousness. And for 120 years after Noah had been given the instruction of God, had been given the word of God that destruction is coming, Noah, here here are your plans that I'm giving you to build an ark that you might save your family as a remnant preach the message. And Peter says here that Noah through that time was a preacher of God's righteousness, God's mercy being displayed so that others might hear. I may have shared this story with you one time, but I'll share it again just because I like hearing myself tell it. When I was 16, I had my first new car. It was new to me. It was a 1972 Monte Carlo. Now, if you think back in that day, Sharon, you remember my car. The 1972 Monte Carlo was a cream car. It had leather interior. It had front bucket seats with no center console. And it was a good-looking car. And I can remember I paid $1,200, or actually, I financed $1,200 to buy that car. And my dad had a curfew on me at that time. Kids, curfews are good, right? And my curfew was 11 p.m. I had to be home by 11 p.m. Well, just like any 16-year-old with a car, I determined that I could fudge that time just a little bit. And so I would come home at 11.05, 11.10, and 11.15, and my dad continued to give me warnings. What time's your curfew? 11 o'clock. You know what time it is? Yeah, Dad, but it was kind of like, yeah, I know what the curfew, I know what, I know what you say, but you're really not going to do anything if I continue to violate this curfew. Well, the last time, it's almost as if my dad's cup had been full. I remember walking in, and I can see him sitting right there at the kitchen table. It was about 11.35, and I walked in, and my dad's sitting there. The only thing my dad said was, give me your keys. I thought, okay. So I went to my room, and I got along with my keys. Remember we used to have payment books? Some of you don't remember that. You tear out a page each month you made the payment. And I brought my payment book as well as my insurance invoice into my dad and gave him those with the keys. And dad took them and he didn't say a word. And I thought, hey, dad's going to make the payment. He's going to make the insurance. This will pass and I'll get a free ride. It was Friday night, Saturday morning after I got up, I looked in the driveway and my car was not out in the driveway. My dad had taken it one mile up at the end of Ellington Road in Newton County and parked it on the corner of Ellington Road and Highway 81 with a for sale sign on it. He had mercy and we renegotiated his terms. You see, just like that, Jesus says, just like in the days of Noah, that there'll be the warning there, but there will be none that heed. But in that warning, there is the mercy of God. And this is what I love, that while we understand and know that God is, God is, God has to judge. By the way, side note, sidebar, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have been judged. Our sin has been judged in Jesus. Can you tell him thank you for that this morning? But there's a day of judgment, but there's also a time of mercy I love what Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 20. He says, of those, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited 
in the days of Noah. You see, God was patient during that time. Here's a repeated phrase throughout Scripture. I'm going to quote it from Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, but you'll find it in various Psalms throughout Scripture. The writer says that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. We all remember the story of Jonah, right? It's one of those stories you learned in Sunday school, the big fish. God calls Jonah, tells him to go to Nineveh and preach against that city because the sin is so great. And if they don't repent, then I'm going to bring judgment. And Jonah sets out and he goes the other direction, right? A big storm comes along. He's he's thrown overboard in the boat. The big fish swallows him. And for three days, he's in the belly. And then he's spit up on the beach and he reluctantly obeys God and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches, he prophesies against the sin of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh repent. And we would all say, yes, hallelujah, right? Not Jonah. Jonah was upset with God. And he says this, I love this in Jonah chapter four, verse two. He says, please, Lord, Was this not what I said while I was in my own country after the people of Nineveh had repented? For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. What's the key there? The people of Nineveh did what? They repented and turned towards God. You see, God is always, always, always willing to extend His grace when one of us repents, is willing to turn from our sin and turn to God. And in His mercy, He declares the message over and over. Peter says this in chapter 3, verse 9 of Second Peter, The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Aren't you glad that God was patient towards you? I mean, before you came to trust Christ, before you responded or as you responded to the drawing of the Holy Spirit and you heard the message of the gospel, aren't you glad that those years and that time preceding that, that God was patient Now, the way that word patient that's translated in the English, patience actually means to suffer long. That God suffered long with us until we heard and responded to the message. He says in this verse, not wishing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance. So someone has the idea this morning that that God is just wringing his hands and cannot wait to bring judgment and he's hoping that they don't respond, we're wrong. God desires, he wishes that none should perish but all come to repentance and he's given Christ and the gospel and the message of the gospel so that others might hear and be born again and saved from the coming wrath that's to come. Can I clue you in on something? And he's called you and me to be an ambassador of that message. He's called you and I as his representatives 
his ambassador to carry that message to all that we might be able to come into contact with. That's why our mission statement here at First Conyers is that we want to win one to Jesus, disciple them in Christ, and then send them to win up. That's the only mission that he's given to us. Pre-COVID, in COVID, and post-COVID, right? The mission doesn't stop. He's called us to be ambassadors. Now, here's a question that that we need to examine as as Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You see, Paul had in mind when he wrote that, those that might be believers who who are, are taking for granted, if you will, they take lightly God's patience. They take lightly God's grace. They, they take lightly his tolerance. And they continue on in that path. Paul's basically saying, listen, don't, 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 don't try to take advantage of that. God in his kindness... Because you've not experienced maybe the wrath, the judgment of God in that God in his kindness is wanting to bring you to a place of repentance. The other thing that Paul most likely had in his mind were those who had not trusted Christ at that point. And like those in the day of Noah, yeah, Noah, you say it's coming, but it's never even rained before. What are you talking about? The earth's going to flood. They didn't even know what rain was. Noah, that's foolish. Or the progressive church today would say, that's foolishness. God's love abounds and everybody's going to make it in one way or the other. Or to the one who's never trusted Christ, don't you recognize that, that God is extending his kindness God's extending his mercy to you, just waiting that you would turn and respond to the gospel. Here's a question that that came to me as I was studying this passage. I'm going to open up a can of worms with this, but I'm sure some of you may have some of the same questions too. The question is, God, why... (laughs) Why did you go ahead and destroy all of mankind, knowing that even after you had rescued Noah and his family, that men were going to continue on in their sin? Because we read in chapter 8 that after everything had gone, the earth had receded, that, that men were still continually evil in their hearts. Listen again what he says in verse 1 of chapter 6. The condition that had, had, had come on the earth at that time. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. So they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Three possible answers to that question that I just posed. One of them I think is probably most probable, but let me underline it and say this. We don't know for sure. Number one is this, that corruption and evil have become so pronounced on the earth that God God had mind and knew the violence was so, so terrible, according to the Scriptures. And God knew that in His mercy He needed to wipe that out, or all men would be wiped out due to their own vices. That's possible. Number two may be this, that that God had used this judgment as a sign and a warning to those generations that would follow after later. By the way, we read Paul write this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Speaking of those things formerly that had taken place, Now, these things happened to them as example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, all of those stories that we read in the Old Testament, this story of Noah and God's judgment, according to Paul, God had written them, God had placed them in his word so that we might be warned and know. Are you like me? You see the examples of men in Scripture or women in Scripture, <laughs> but, but you sometimes do the same thing. Are there any sanctimonious people here that say, no, I don't, no, no. But they've been given to us as a warning that we might see, and not only to recognize of God's judgment, but recognize in our own lives the consequences natural consequences, if you will, of living a disobedient life to God. The third possibility, which I think, in my view, is the most probable, is linked on this phrase, sons of God. This phrase that's used here is interpreted in two different ways in Scripture. And it's interpreted in basically two schools of thoughts among theologians. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not a theologian, but two schools of thoughts. If you want a theologian, ask Ryan or Matt's about to, or Zach's about to become a theologian when he starts courses in seminary this year. Two lines of thought. That the sons of God that he's referring to here in Genesis are fallen angels. Where they had come, the sons of God had come and they had gone into the daughters of man. And there was a corrupted race that had come about as a result of demonic fallen angels having relations with earthly women. Now, there's some problems with that interpretation. I'm not going to go into them this morning. The other interpretation is, is that, that these sons of God were men of renown, great men of that day, who were most likely demonically influenced or demonically possessed, 
had had relations with the sons of daughters and referring to the two lines of Cain and Seth. But there's a problem with that interpretation as well. You see, this phrase, sons of God, is, is used three other times in the Old Testament, and all three times that it's used in the Old Testament, it refers to fallen angels. However, this term used in the New Testament three different times refers to those who are followers of Christ. So the bottom line is none of us can be sure. If you want to argue it later, go ahead and argue it later. The fact is, we just really aren't quite sure. Can I put a side note here? When Scripture is not clear, don't try to make clarity out of it. Amen? That's where we get into trouble. That's where we get into isms. That's where we get into, well, I feel that this means. It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what you feel. Can you say amen to that? What does the Word of God say? And where it's not clear, we just leave it there and say, God, you got to sort it all out, right? You see, it, 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 I personally, today, this is, my, <laughs> this is where I am. Ten years ago, I was in a different place. But the more I study this out, the more I look at it, I think that maybe the most probable is, is that somehow, even though there's problems with this interpretation, is that fallen angels had had relations with the daughters of men. Where I get that from primarily is in Jude verse 6. I kind of skipped over this verse, if you remember when I was going through 6, or Jude, because I didn't want to deal with it, right? But here's what Jude says when he makes reference in verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling." He has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that day. Now, if you couple that with what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter writes this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. And in context, Peter is making reference to the time of Noah. So it quite possibly could have been that this is what took place. Can I underline this, that, that nobody really knows? If anybody really tells you that they really know, they don't know, Right? When I worked at a missions organization, we had two guys there that were theologians. And one was on one extreme of that position, and the other was on the other extreme of that position. And, and when it kind of got tense around the office and, and things were crazy, I just kind of threw a grenade out there in the middle of the room every now and then. And I'd say, well, you know, who do you think the Nephilim were? <laughs> And they'd forget about the issue we were dealing with in the office, and they'd go at it with each other with all of their arguments. The bottom line is we don't know, but that's not the point. The point of Genesis chapter 6 is to tell us that in the days of Noah, it will be just as it was when the Son of Man is about to come that they'll be going on about life and, and, and the idea of judgment is a thing that's past and that's lost. And I tell you, it's frightening in the church in America that the idea of the judgment of God is past and it's lost. 
Listen, without judgment, there is no salvation. What are we saved from? Bad consequences in life? Who cares? We're all going to die anyway. We're saved from an eternity in hell, separated from God. So there's the judgment of God that is coming. And the point of the message is, church, don't sit back playing church as normal. Don't sit back thinking that these times of service are for our entertainment or what makes me feel good. Realize and recognize that there is judgment that's coming and God in his mercy and his grace and his love desires that none should perish but all come to eternal life and the message he has given to us to propagate, to promote, and to pronounce is that there is salvation through Jesus Christ and that one way only. Well, let me conclude. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. Paul tells Timothy that in those last days, this is the way that it's going to be. And we need to take heed of this because we recognize so many of the things that, that Paul was writing to Timothy on. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And understand this, he says that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, um, unappeasable. I just washed my tongue this morning. I can't do a thing with it. Unappeasable slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, folks, we don't want to sit here and wag a finger at the lost world because there are plenty in the body of Christ that would fit this description. Here's the question. Where are you? If you're in this room this morning or you're watching live on our feed through our website or Facebook, the question is, where are you? Have you trusted Christ? The payment that He made for your sins and that his righteousness has been imputed to you, transferred to you. So now that you stand before a holy God, clothed in the righteousness of God in Christ, or have you refused and rejected that? It really comes down to that. My invitation to you this morning would be that if you've not trusted Christ, trusted that his blood was shared for you and put your whole trust and faith in him for the means of your salvation, that you would do that today. My charge to the body of Christ is this. Folks, judgment is coming. I don't know when. Nobody tells you they know when. They're wrong. Somebody comes to you and say, God told me, no, God hadn't told them anything that he hadn't, right? 
We know what God has told us is that it is coming. And the commission, the mission that he's given to us as the church is to proclaim it to everyone that will give an ear. Here's what I want to ask you to do this morning in application. Jenny, would you just come and and play? Because I I really think there's a response that we need to have to the message this morning. Zach, if you want to come as well. Zach, whatever song the Lord's laid on your heart. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to respond to this message. You can respond right where you are. You can respond by coming here to the altar and kneeling and praying. You can respond if you're online with just giving yes and amen to that. But I want us to respond today. Number one, if you've never trusted Christ, I want to invite you to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation today. And come here and let me know that you're doing that. Secondly, if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, would you make it a committed prayer every day for the next seven days? That every day when you get up in the morning, when you get into your car, into your truck, whatever it is, wherever you are, would you make it an earnest prayer, God, you know I've got plans today, and God, you're sovereign, and can you can use me wherever I am today. God, give me an opportunity today, Lord, that I might be able to plant a seed of the gospel in somebody's heart. God, give me an opportunity. Maybe many seeds have been planted, but God, give me an opportunity to cultivate that seed that's been planted in somebody's heart. And God, by your grace, if you'd allow me to watch as you save somebody and be a participant in that harvest, God, let me be that. Would you commit to pray that this week? However the Lord leads you to respond, I want to invite you to respond today. Again, you can sit right where you are. You can come here to the altar. I just think we need to respond to the message this morning. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.